a better way of seeing the life that you want to live. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast. I'm glad you're with me today. If I squint real hard, I can almost see you. You know, I listen to each one of these podcasts before we put them out. And one of the things that I often hear myself saying is, be kinder to yourself. And truthfully, it usually slips out before I've even thought about it. Now, you'll notice I never say, be nicer to yourself. They're not the same thing. So today, I want us to talk about being kind and being nice and showing those virtues to yourself and showing yourself a little compassion. So kind and nice are both doing something positive, right? They're usually for another. In in this episode, we're going to talk about directing that to yourself, but it's the same process. Nevertheless, even though they're both positive, they're different. And most of us recognize that kind and nice are not words that we use as direct synonyms for one another. People do kind things, people do nice things, but something is different in there. Nice is opening the door at the grocery store for someone. Kind is stopping to help someone who's struggling get their groceries to the car. Nice is opening the door at the grocery store for someone. Kind is stopping to help someone who's struggling get their groceries to the car. It's different. So, what is nice? Nice tends to be small. So, there's small gestures. There's typically no significant cost to us. We can compliment you. We can open a door. We can do something that is just a brief aside in our normal flow of activities. And those are nice. And we like nice. Nice is good. But when we're being nice, we're not necessarily being nice for the other person. Sometimes you're being nice because you're doing it for yourself. Or you're doing it for people who are watching. Right? Nice makes someone's life a little easier or a little more pleasurable. Maybe it's a little aha surprise. But it's not a big thing. Nice is a social lubricant. This is a whole class of, of things that make interacting with one another easier. All right? So social lubricant. It's like putting a little grease on the skids. So a sense of humor is a social lubricant. For some people, alcohol is a social lubricant. <laughs> you might want to tone that one back a little bit. Being nice is also a social lubricant. It makes it easier for us to interact with one another. Being nice can also be 
social signaling. It can be a display behavior. It can be, oh, look at me, I'm a nice person. I'm easy to get along with. I help make people's days better. And this can, in turn, and we know this, build esteem in other people. They think of us differently when we're nice. And nice often looks the same or very similar to kindness, but it's easier. The cost is low, and there's no exchange expected to it. So that's one thing it'll have in common with being kind. I don't expect you to compliment me back if I compliment you. It would be nice, but it's not expected. Nudge, nudge, hint, hint, wink, wink, yeah. So let's contrast this with what is kind. Kind requires some generosity. There's a real cost to kindness. Kindness means, and it may not be a a large cost, but still you're taking a little time, you're taking a little effort or energy, out of your day, out of your normal flow of activities to deliver a kindness to somebody else. So there's some kind of generosity. There's a slightly different process going on in your head as well with kindness. Kindness requires consideration. So it requires what say, sociologists would call role-taking or psychologists would call theory of mind. I'm, I'm having to put myself into your place and anticipate, oh, this is something that they really need. And it's something that I can deliver in this moment. Again, small or large, you don't have to be truly considerate to be nice. You can just be following a social script. When we experience niceness as a recipient, when somebody is nice to us, it may or may not be meaningful. It can be, oh, pleasurable, right? You think, oh, that's really that's really cool. That's nice. Kindness is experienced differently. It's meaningful to the recipient. It may be small meaningful, but it still is experienced in that deeper way. And, of course, kindness is what we would call a gift-type interaction. There was this anthropologist, early anthropologist, I think he wrote a book called The Gift around 1902 or so, somewhere around there. And uh, his name was Marcel Mauss, and he was uh, Emil Durkheim's nephew. And, and it's a really lovely little book. And in it, he distinguishes between two kinds of interactions and two kinds of relationships, exchange type and gift type. Exchange type is our more distant, instrumental relations with other people. So I go into the store, I have an interaction with the clerk. 
I give that clerk some money and, and she lets me walk out with some goods, right? Quick exchange. The more deeply we come to know other people and the more socially intimate we are with other people, our relations take on these gift-type characteristics. So I just do something not because I want to get something out of you, but because you are you and I care about you. And kindness is so surprising often because it's that gift-type offering in a relationship that's not that close to begin with. So nice is one thing, kind is another thing. When we're comparing kind versus nice, the intention is important. Now, I can't walk inside your head and know what your true intention actually is, but if you're being truly kind, it comes from consideration. Kind is that true gift versus a mostly inconsequential display. Kind is real compassion and empathy versus following an approved social script. And kind is not always nice. So if your friend has a big day and, and your friend kind of stinks, and you take that friend aside and say, you know, you're a little smelly today and, and you probably ought to do something about that before you go off on your big meeting. Well, that's not nice to hear, but it's probably kind. And it probably is meaningful and helps them experience a better day. So why do we become unkind? You know, by nature, I, I, I'm a pragmatic optimist. Hope for the best, plan for all the possible contingencies. And, and research actually supports that this is a, a really good view to approach the world with, actually. And, and I'm not going to get into that in this episode, but we may sometime. Because we need to go back to identity and, and talk about some more things there. So why do you become unkind? Well, in the first place, maybe you're just mean, uncharitable, pessimistic, negative, and not very nice. And, you know, actually, that is the minority of people. And there's some people who are truly like that, but that is not the most common reason why people are unkind. Sometimes we're unkind because we're at a place where our perspective has become kind of small, and maybe we're distracted, so we're not focusing on the interactions with other people, and we're unnecessarily brusque. Sometimes we're unkind because of what's called free-floating negative affect, which I love that. So sometimes you just wake up in a bad mood or you wake up in a good mood and you have no rational reason for why you're in a good mood or a bad mood. You just are. It's, it's what's called free-floating affect, right? that free-floating feeling. And sometimes when you have that free-floating negative affect, somebody walks into your your firing range and they get it associated with them. Sometimes we're unkind because we're experiencing fear, distress, overwhelm, pain, sadness, and our inner experience just kind of spills out 
into the world. Sometimes we do it because of perceived retaliation. So we think somebody has been mean to us and we're mean back. And yeah, sometimes you really may have asked for it, sometimes accidentally. And finally, it's more likely to happen backstage. So Irving Goffman had this wonderful metaphor for how we live our lives. It was called dramaturgy. He, he took Shakespeare's All the World is a Stage uh, aphorism literally and said, look, we have front stage behavior and backstage behavior. And as somebody who grew up on stage, this really resonates with me, where sometimes we're out and we're performing and we're trying to get something done and make a certain kind of impression, and then sometimes we're backstage and whew, we're down and the masks are off. So often those people who share the backstage parts of your life are more likely to experience some inadvertent unkindness because whew, you're down and... Uh, you're not on, and you're not monitoring, and you're not doing all of these things. So all of these examples that I've given are the same reasons why you are unkind to yourself as well. And of course, if we know someone well, like a social intimate or like ourselves, what we're fighting over, what we're picking on each other on, what we're mean to each other about, what we're unkind to each other about is seldom about what we say it is. So, after the break, we will take our new understanding of kindness and look at an important way we judge ourselves, self-esteem. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life, and we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life And we're back and we're judging ourselves. Not too harshly. We're going to be kind about it. Not nice. So how we judge ourselves is part of our self-image or our identity. And there are lots of parts to this. And, and if you will recall back in Season 1, Episode 10, I did an episode about identity. So I'll let you go back and refer to that. And I think we'll have another one coming soon because there's a lot to it. And it's really important because... How we feel about life, the quality of life that we experience, the experiences that we have, those are all processed through our identity. And a lot of the problems and the challenges that we face are actually identity issues. Let's look at self-esteem here, and we're going to contrast it with something else here in a bit. You know, I, I was just curious, so when I was prepping some notes for this episode, I ran a quick search on it, and there were 58 billion hits on self-esteem. So it's obviously something that many of us are very concerned about. But I want us to think about self-esteem a little bit differently here, 
and I'm going to define it as how we judge ourselves when we're at our best. Keep that in mind because that's going to be important. That's the thing that we don't usually think about, that clause, when we're at our best. And of course, there are like kind and nice, and like so many of these things that we talk about, there's there's a deep version of self-esteem, and then there's a really shallow, superficial version of self-esteem, too. So, if you're looking for true self-esteem, you'll seek respect, not admiration. Admiration is fleeting, it's fickle, it is based on surface judgments, how you're looking that day, whether you're being sparkling and charismatic that day. Respect comes from the character of your actions. If we want to look for true self-esteem, we're seeking those unconditional sources of that assessment, right? Not the contingent ones. Oh, if I'm looking fabulous today, then I feel good about myself. If I am on time today, I'm feeling good about myself. All those things, right? Those are all contingent. They're, they're surface. And often they're based on things that are out of our control. And if we're looking to those sources for our self-esteem, then we're probably not going to feel very good about ourselves. On average, self-esteem tends to rise from a low point in, in our youth and our adolescence all the way through middle age and then slowly decreases thereafter. It's probably cultural. It's probably because... We live in a world that tends to devalue age in ways that historically we may not have. But self-esteem is really important because it's a source of energy and motivation that keeps you out and up and engaged in the world and trying so self-esteem is sort of like a battery that you draw on. When we have esteem for ourselves, it increases our sense of capability, our sense of security in the world, our sense of safety. It increases our internal locus of control. So we feel that we are going to be capable that we are able to get things done. We have confidence in our beliefs and in our problem-solving abilities. We tend to trust our own judgment. When we have self-esteem, we, we seldom worry or ruminate. We have greater resistance to manipulation by others for their nefarious purposes, whatever they are. We have increased enjoyment of our experience and of the world in general. 
and we have increased internal awareness of our own feelings, our motivations, you know, what I call our society of mind, right? We're, we're more aware and understanding of what's going on in ourselves, and we have greater external awareness. We're paying more attention to other people. We're more concerned with social norms, with fairness. And we're more effective to cooperate. We get things done together with other people better when all of us have a good level of self-esteem. So that esteem is related to our emotional stability. It's related to our conscientiousness. It's related to more prudent decisions. So we, we engage in less unthinking, unnecessary risk-taking when we have self-esteem, when we have more regard for ourselves. And it's also inversely related to shame, to guilt, to self-criticism, to the need for external approval. All of those things that negatively impact our experience in the world and especially our relationships with other people. Because it's tough dealing with somebody who always feels shame, who feels no self-worth, who is always apologizing and feeling guilty, who's always criticizing themselves, who's always looking to you for approval so that they can get the, the energy that would normally come from that internal battery of self-esteem from other people around them. So self-esteem is an important resource. And kindness is an important tool for increasing your self-esteem. Let's face it, life with a chronic illness can increase the likelihood of experiences that lower our self-esteem. Our physical appearance may affect us in ways that other people notice and may not judge positively. With chronic illness, we're, we're always facing physical and mental health issues. With chronic illness, we often suffer various forms of relative impoverishment. Okay, so maybe we don't have as much money as we would because our, our earnings have been limited in some way. We probably don't have as much energy as we would we don't have as much concentration and as much, you know, all those internal resources that we're trying to, trying to do. Life with a chronic illness uh, invites trauma and significant negative experiences into our lives, and that causes a hit to our self-esteem. It results in stigmatization. It results in bullying. And all of those things deplete this internal self-esteem battery that we're carrying around with us. And so that means that 
you're not only dealing with the initial problem, but this is another one of those follow-on challenges that you're facing because of life with a chronic illness. And low self-esteem can become a self-defeating spiral as you are more likely to experience confirmation of your negative self-assessment. So if you don't think well of yourself, you're less confident in the world, you may not be as successful in doing things as you otherwise would be, and then you berate yourself for that, and other people assess you negatively for that, and the spiral continues. I would also add that self-esteem is kind of a Goldilocks feature because too low a self-esteem and it's not good, too much self-esteem is also bad as well. And we get narcissism, we get contingent self-worth, we get all kinds of petty social comparison behaviors, we get frustration, defensive negative emotions, we get something called the Dunning-Kruger effect which is a lovely thing, and that means that uh, we'll do, no, we'll do a, a, a deeper aside in, in another episode about this. But the Dunning-Kruger effect basically is that when you are incompetent, you are the last person to realize you are incompetent. When you have too much self-esteem, you tend to overestimate how good you are at things. The Dunning-Kruger effect means that, and we see this consistently, you are probably the last person who is the accurate judge of your skill or your ability to do something when you have too much self-esteem. And when you have too much self-esteem, you are always hyper-tuned to perceived slights and attacks. Because if anything comes out that, that doesn't agree with your inflated assessment of yourself, then you take that as an attack. The problem is reality will often remind you that you are truly not that cool. So too much self-esteem usually isn't our issue unless we're overcompensating. Self-esteem even though we talk about it a lot and we're very concerned with it and we may have engaged in some social practices that artificially inflate self-esteem for some of the most well-intentioned reasons, it's actually not the most important aspect here. More important than self-esteem which again is how we judge ourselves when we're at our best, is self-compassion. And self-compassion is how we judge ourselves when we are at our worst, when we need kindness. So after the break, we'll talk about self-compassion and figure out what it means to be kind to yourself. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. 
You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And I'm sure over the break, we were all thinking positive thoughts and affirmations and improving our self-esteem. But in this segment, we're going to focus on self-compassion. And self-compassion is also a way that we judge ourselves. And it's how we judge ourselves when we are at our worst. And, and by way of comparison, I said that I had done a search about the number of mentions of self-esteem on the wild and woolly interwebs, and it was 58 billion. There were only 3.7 million hits for self-compassion, <laughs> which may be part of our problem in a nutshell. Because we're all about trying to feel good when we're doing well. But what's more important is that we feel comforted when we're not feeling well. So self-compassion is not self-pity. It's not feeling victimization feeling sorry for yourself, feeling like you lack an internal locus of control. It's none of those things. It honestly acknowledges your limitation, your failure, your overwhelm, your pain. And it begins there. It said, all right, I've had an experience that wasn't good an experience that I wish I hadn't had. Somehow, I haven't lived up to some expectation that I had or that others had or whatever it is. There was some sort of standard and you feel inadequate. And it's going to be honest about that, but it's going to separate out the fact from the feeling. So it may say, you know, I did a lousy job giving that speech, for example. And you're not going to just define it as a lousy job. You're going to say, specifically, here's X, Y, and Z that I I need to improve on. And then you're also going to acknowledge, and because of that, I feel this way. But those are separate things. There's, there's the fact, here's what happened, and then here's the assessment. So you're going to be aware of those things. Self-compassion is also kind to oneself in the face of our inevitable human shortcomings rather than self-criticizing. Now, let me be really clear here. 
it doesn't mean that suddenly you stop criticizing yourself. What it does mean is you understand that there are a whole chorus of voices with different things to say in your head. And you can acknowledge that critic and then you can you can sort of feel like there's Statler and Waldorf sitting up in the cheap seats there at the Muppet Show, bickering and complaining to one another, and then ignore them. And give them their time, say, yes, I understand that this is what you feel about it, but then acknowledge the other voices who are assessing it in different ways. And that's really crucial because... When we are not feeling compassionate to ourselves, when we're feeling unkind to ourselves, those are the only voices that we fixate on. And those are the only voices that we then ruminate on. We play them over and over and over again. We let them go. Go back to the mindfulness and meditation episodes that we've done. Use those tools. And that brings us to our next point. Self-compassion is mindful. It is aware of all the internal judgments, but it doesn't cling to any one of them. It doesn't ruminate. It doesn't fixate. It doesn't replay time after time after time those most awful judgments. It lets the mental weather happen. There's no denial. There's no suppression. You let them have their say. They're critical. You can say, yeah, you're being twits about it. But then it's also listening to the other views, the other assessments on what happened. And it's also acknowledging the positives as well. So you're getting a more complete picture. And with a more complete picture, then you're able to build on that better. And you're able to come out of even what you thought was kind of a crushing, awful experience, feeling better about it. Because where self-esteem is the battery that, that keeps you going forward, Self-compassion is the pillow that is supporting you when you feel like you failed. Self-compassion isn't, and this is something that it shares with kindness in general, it isn't just focused on you. It's focused on, it recognizes common humanity. So it says, all right, I failed at this, whatever this thing was. And other people fail too. And we all fail sometimes. And the issue isn't the failure. The issue is what you take out of the failure. And you move forward. You can't keep living in that failure. You have to acknowledge it. You have to let the judgments run their course, see all of it, see the positive, see the negative, and then move forward. So what we're doing when we're being compassionate with ourselves, 
This is not you inside there saying, oh, you're a special little snowflake and you're just fabulous about everything. That's not what it's about. It's about saying, no, you're human, like all the rest of us are human. And there were some things that, that we can use to grow out of this experience. So we are going to recognize all the judgments. We're going to minimize the criticisms. We're not going to focus on the criticisms. We're not going to focus or ruminate on the criticisms. We're going to acknowledge them. When they come through, we'll listen to it, and then we'll let it go and go on. And this is something we have to practice. And we've got to build this muscle. Go back to the exercises we talked about in previous episodes. Fundamentally, self-compassion is forgiving. It is accepting of all the aspects of ourselves. We all like to have this sparkly, clean, perfect, idealized image of ourselves and we know that that's not factual. This is about finding acceptance in all of our humanity. It's about saying, it's all right to be frail in some ways. It's all right to fail in some ways. It's important to take something good out of it and move forward. So again, not self-pity, not victimization, not feeling sorry for yourself, not denying your internal locus of control and your ability to, to learn from this and, and get better. Notice how all of this is very different to self-esteem. And it is a measurably different phenomenon. And we can, we can measure someone's current level of self-esteem and certain, someone's current level of self-compassion. They are two different things. When you are consistently unkind to yourself, you can suffer what I'll call anticipatory withdrawal as you try to avoid your own negative judgment. Right? So, so you know that, oh, something awful has just happened and your self-esteem is kind of crushed, and you need your self-compassion, and you know that those negative voices are coming inside, and then you try to deny it and, and avoid it and ignore it somehow. You try to suppress it. You try to move away. We do this with other people when they act that way toward us, Right? We, we try to get away from those naysayers. You're trying to do the same thing with that part of yourself. And if you do, you will always feel like you're on the run. So you have to face it and you have to deal with it. So I will ask you a question here that I have asked in other episodes. What are you teaching yourself? Every time we do something, every time we say something, we are implicitly sending messages to others and to ourselves. When you are critical of yourself all the time, 
in this unreasonable way, you are teaching yourself that you are not valuable. That is the lesson that you're learning. So, during this break, I want you to think about some better lessons that you can teach yourself. And when we come back, we will look at some specific, concrete things that we can do to improve our self-esteem and self-compassion. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life, and we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Justjump.life And we're back. And there are lots and lots of things that we can do to improve our self-esteem and our self-compassion. We can do this, just kind of in general, through kindness to ourselves, through successful experiences that we expose ourselves to. Because on the one hand, our psyche doesn't care so much whether it's a difficult thing that we've succeeded at or an easy thing that we've succeeded at. It's more primal than that. It's counting successes. So acknowledge those small things. Actively forgive yourself in the face of failure. All of these things have to be practiced. So we want to put ourselves in affirming environments and affirming interactions. So we need to think about where we are spending our time, what we're spending our time doing, who we are spending our time doing things with. And you want to put yourself in the position for easy wins, too. Easy wins are really cool. This is what my Plan C days are all about. Sometimes when we're having a really awful day, the best thing that we can walk out with is a handful of Plan C wins that, that help us feel like we've gotten something out of it that day. And we need to be better about accepting compliments from others. Sometimes when our self-esteem is, is down and we're experiencing no self-compassion, when somebody else says something positive to us, we tend to discount it or dismiss it, and we tend to not accept it. Stop that. Accept those compliments. Turn around, look them in the eye, smile sweetly, honestly, and thank them. Acknowledge it so that you remember that you have been complimented. And that's okay. Compliments are good. They're nice. All the way back to the beginning there. See how I did that? Remember that even though your critic tends to be the loudest, there are lots of different viewpoints going on in your mind. So who else is speaking in your head? What other kinds of judgments are being made? 
And it may take a little while to calm the critics down because they tend to shout and, and they tend to be insistent. If you need to, after some kind of, of really bad event, sit down and make a specific concrete list of all the judgments about it, good and bad, about everything that happened. And, you know, I've said this before, but when we write things down and get them out of our heads, it gives us a bit of distance. And sometimes it's much easier for us to process these emotional challenges when we do give ourselves some distance. So we're going to get some distance. We're going to treat ourselves as another. You might even want to speak about yourself in the third person. So Kevin did this. Kevin did whatever. Now, don't do this to other people. Don't walk around and say, Kevin is having a fabulous day today. No, that doesn't work. But to yourself, sometimes it helps give you the mental and emotional distance that you need. It helps activate a different part of our brain as we do that. So we want to change our internal conversations. Because ultimately, self-esteem, self-compassion are the results of these internal conversations that we're having. Now, you want to shift them to the positive, but they need to be, and I will really stress this, believable affirmations. Years ago, there was a, a Saturday Night Live skit with a with character who consistently made these vapid, unbelievable affirmations about himself. You are wonderful. And it was funny because these were the kinds of vacuous, meaningless, over-the-top, silly, happy, positive things. They were all surface and no substance. And that's why we found this routine funny. And I think they still exist as memes on the Internet. Every once in a while I'll see a, a meme come along. But there are certain kinds of conversations going on in our head that we need to replace with more positive and still believable affirmations. And that's how we're shifting the conversation. So we're acknowledging the negative one, but if you hear like all or nothing thinking, so if, if something is either all good or all bad, then that's something that needs to be teased apart and replaced because that's not the real world. There, there are no unalloyed goods and bads. There, there's always something going on in the gray space in the real world. It may be way closer to one side or another, but if you are, your voices are engaging in that all or nothing, if you, if you had a mixed experience and one little thing went wrong and that ruined the entire thing for you, then 
that's the kind of speech that you want to replace. So this is a kind of mental filtering. You're only seeing the negatives. You're dwelling on the negatives. You're distorting your view of whatever it is, including yourself, by filtering out all of these good or neutral aspects. If you're reframing positives into negatives, then you need to become aware of that. So, in other words, maybe you took a test, and you did really well on it, and you get your grade back, and you think, well, it was an easy test. And we do that sort of thing to ourselves. No. You did well because you did well according to the standard they put before you. And just because you may have found it easy, that probably means that you know it better than a lot of other people. Because other people didn't find it easy. So stop reframing positives as negatives. Stop jumping to negative conclusions. So if your inner voices are, are jumping to negative conclusions with no evidence, right? So if, you, if you've texted somebody and they haven't responded to you and you're sitting there thinking, oh, they think I'm a loser. I'm not important to them. No, it's probably not about you. It really isn't. If you are confusing your feelings and facts, like we talked about earlier, that leads to conclusions like, oh, I feel so down, I feel like a failure, I must be a failure. No, you failed at a particular thing. We all do. So all of this negative self-talk, when you're undervaluing yourself, when you're putting yourself down, when you're using self-deprecating humor, right? Those need to be reframed. So, again, it's a process. You're learning to do it. You're, you're hearing that voice, and then you're responding with, oh, and it could be seen this way. So you're adding to the conversation. You're adding more reasonable, more fact-based, more positive voices to your internal conversation. So you're replacing this with hopeful statements, right? I can do this. I know it's going to be tough, but I can gut my way through. You're forgiving yourself. Notice I've used that a lot this, this episode. You're avoiding normative statements. Oh, I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Right? You're, you're framing what you are doing in terms of descriptive Fact-based, okay, I'm going to walk into the room, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do the next thing, and, and you're not focusing on this should standard, this normative standard. You're just going to let the experience happen. You're going to focus on the positive, you're going to focus on what you can influence. If you're making your judgments about what other people thought, or about what other people did, or about things in your environment that got in your way that you couldn't control, then you're setting yourself up for lower self-esteem and lower self-compassion, 
because you're taking responsibility for things that worked against you that there were n- there was no way you could do anything about. Some things aren't in our control. To have a good, healthy locus of control, we have to understand where it ends as well. Make all of this a learning experience. And again, we're back to we need to live a more examined life. When, when we're out there on the edge and we're dealing with the negatives and the trauma and the pain and the distress and all of this, we need to become more aware, even when our inclination is to run from it. So be more encouraging. Look to every positive Keep your judgments more factual. And show real compassion to your future self. Because your future self has to deal with all the consequences and fallout of whatever you're doing right now. Don't just be nice to yourself now. Be kind to your future self. And also, be nice to yourself sometimes too. Because we like when people do nice things for us. So do nice things for yourself every once in a while. So I may do a nice thing for myself here in a bit. It's a wonderful day, and I'll go jump out of an airplane here in just a few minutes. Notice all of this is about learning and about awareness, and this is a theme that we keep coming back to. Once we're aware, we can learn. But nobody taught us this stuff. Because we all presume that we know how to be human. And no, there's a lot we have to learn. So kindness to self begins with kindness to others as well. Practice the kindness universally. Kindness asserts our agency. Every time you're kind... It is an example of you making a positive choice in the face of the awfulness of life. That's really cool. And why is all this important? If you think you can't, you likely won't. If you don't forgive yourself, you won't try again. And with those thoughts, go out Be kind to yourself and others. Be well, do well, and do good. If you've enjoyed today's topic and want to join the conversation with Dr. Kevin Payne, find Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.